0: Welcome back. After 45 years in journalism, Washington Post Executive Editor Marty Barron is retiring. Barron came to the Post in 2013. Under his leadership, the paper has won 10 Pulitzer Prizes and nearly doubles its staff. Joining me now to discuss his retirement, his years at the Post, and frankly, the future of journalism is Marty Barron, Executive Editor of the Washington Post. Marty Barron, thank you for joining
1: us. Thank you for having me.
0: Marty Baron, why did you decide that now was the right time to retire?
1: Well, I'm 66. I'm, I'm beyond the normal retirement age. I've been at this, as you noted, uh, for 45 years uh, as a journalist, and I've been leading newsrooms for 20 years. And uh, these are exhausting jobs, uh, particularly in a digital era, uh, the era of the internet, uh, where we always have to be on duty. And so I feel like I've been on duty 24-7, 365, and essentially every minute. And uh, I've reached the point where I would just like to enjoy uh, more free time and greater personal liberty. And, um, and it seems like a good time. Uh, we're starting a new ad- uh, administration in the White House. And... and uh, and it's just a good time for there to be a change, both in my personal life and in, in my personal life. And and it just seemed like a good good moment to do this. And, and also the Post is really on strong footing right now, both journalistically and commercially. And so I feel good about uh, leaving at this moment. You came to the paper eight years ago from the Boston
0: Globe. What drew you to the Washington Post? Uh, well, it was the Washington Post, uh,
1: this uh, journalistic institution with uh, an amazing heritage, the institution that was uh, uh, drove the Water, Watergate investigation uh, that had a history of holding powerful institutions and powerful individuals accountable, um, one of the most storied journalistic institutions in the country and, in fact, in the world. And so how could I, how could I turn down an offer uh, to lead a newsroom like that? You've been in journalism, as you mentioned, for about
0: forty-five years. How have you seen the industry change, especially in the last twenty years? When you've led newsrooms in Miami, Boston, and now here?
1: Well, look, we see we see we've seen a profound change in the way that news and information is delivered uh, with the arrival of the internet uh, and particularly the the spread of broadband. Uh, uh, communications, and uh, that's made possible the mobile devices that everybody has today. It's made possible the dissemination of video on those devices and audio on those devices, and and it's just changed the nature of journalism and what we in what were traditionally newspapers uh, have been able to do. So now we do audio, we do video, we do uh, interactive graphics, animations. Uh, uh, you name it. Uh, so what's, we try to stay true to uh, the traditional values that we've had here at The Post. Uh, and and yet we need to adapt and, and embrace the changes that the digital age has brought upon us. Uh, because people are just getting their information in a different way. And that calls for different forms of storytelling as well. Uh, one is to take advantage of all the tools that are available to us uh, these days, the ones that I just mentioned. And so the nature of, uh, the nature of journalism, the nature in which we tell stories is, is changing. And, um, and so that's been a dramatic, a dramatic change. It's come with a lot of financial pressures on the industry, of course, um, and we've had to adapt there as well. Uh, And we've had to develop new models, uh, new sort of economic models for our business. Uh, So new economic models, new forms of storytelling, uh, all of that is new.
0: Shortly after you came to the post, it was bought by Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos. How has his ownership affected the paper?
1: Well, his impact has been profound. Uh, The moment after he acquired it, after the acquisition was effective, he told us that we needed to change our strategy. Uh, The strategy for the post up till that point had been uh, for and about Washington, meaning that we focused on our region. And uh, he felt that that had been a good strategy for the post, perhaps for the past, but it was not a good strategy for us uh, heading into the future, um, that all of the pillars of our economic model had Essentially collapsed. Uh, and so we'd taken a lot of pain because of the internet, but the internet had given us a gift. And the gift was uh, a national and international distribution at virtually no additional cost. And we were in a position as um, to take advantage of that, uh, to become national and international, in addition to doing our local coverage. And uh, that's because we were in the nation's capital, which was an ideal base for doing that. We had the name The Washington Post, so Washington being something that could be leveraged to a national and international level. And we had a history and a heritage that um, that defined who we were as an institution that uh, established our identity. And that was shining a light in dark corners, holding powerful individuals and powerful institutions accountable, particularly those who govern this country, who are entrusted to govern this country, and so uh, with that, we had to figure out how to go national and international uh, while still providing strong coverage of our our region, and that's what we went about doing.
0: Yes, the region is what we tend to focus on on this broadcast, and the Post has a team of local journalists that cover. This region local news, n- news, however, seems more vital than ever now, especially as smaller outlets shuttered due to financial hardships. What do you th- see as the biggest challenges facing local news?
1: Well, the biggest challenge facing local news around the country is just uh, that there—it's no clear, sustainable economic model for it right now. Um, It's interesting because going back 20 years, many people thought that the institutions that were going to suffer the most were the national ones because they had to face competition from Google, Facebook, uh, and outfits like that. Uh, but, uh, it turns out that, um, local, uh, local outlets were the ones that faced the greatest challenges because all of the sources of revenue, particularly classified advertising and display advertising and local newspapers, uh, have, um, have really diminished. And, um, I mean, classified ad- advertising hardly exists any longer. And, um, and so without the, without the money, uh, those institutions haven't had the resources to cover their communities the way that they deserve to be covered. And so that's been a huge challenge, and, and it's probably the greatest challenge in journalism today. Ahmad in Washington, D.C., has a question
0: along those lines. Ahmad, you're on the air. Go ahead, please.
2: Thank you, Kojo. Uh, sir, when you look at the um, consolidation and centralization of media and you point to it as being in large part due to uh, economics, Do you feel, as we go forward, uh, the threat to democracy getting even greater? I mean, we saw what happened at the Capitol and the um, impact of uh, Mr. Trump uh, on large uh, riots. Do you see that as a, a real threat to democracy as we go forward?
1: I think the threat to democracy comes from um, an aspect of the internet, and that has allowed a so-called media outlets to develop that basically uh, uh, reinforce people's preconceived notions of, uh, of reality uh, when uh, they are often divorced from reality. Um, people who live in sort of parallel information universes. Uh, and uh filled with falsehoods and uh bizarre conspiracy theories and the like um and they turn to those media outlets uh for their so-called information uh and they see the world through that uh the problem now is that people um don't necessarily they want to be more in- affirmed than to be informed uh they want their pre-existing views uh affirmed to them um, being informed means that you will learn things that you didn't Otherwise, know, that your preconceived notions may be contradicted, that there may be facts that uh, challenge the, what, you, what, what you think, um, that there's always something new to learn. Um, and so somehow we have to make a shift back to being informed and not just being affirmed. And uh, the problem with the media environment right now is that it allows the, ex- the existence of uh, a wide variety of um, so called media outlets uh, that are spreading falsehoods, that are spreading misinformation, even disinformation. And, uh, and people believe it. And, uh, that's deeply concerning because in order for us to have a democracy, um, we have to have a, we have to operate from a common set of facts. Um, we should, we should have different opinions. Uh, people will have different opinions. That's the nature of a democracy. There should be a vigorous debate about how to meet the challenges of our society. Uh, but fundamentally, we have to operate from a common set of facts. And now, people are not operating from a common set of facts.
0: Ahmed Nurdin, thank you very much for your call. I'd recognize your voice anyplace. Here now is Burton in Washington, D.C. Burton, you're on the air. Go ahead, please.
2: Yes, I've enjoyed the post since the 50s. I uh, worked with Woodward on Watergate and later the CIA and, and followed your great work in Boston. Uh, My question is this, and I have journalists in the family, uh, but my question is that many stories which 10 years ago I would have expected to find on the op-ed pages of the great newspapers like The Post and Times are now in the front news story as the lead stories. And while I uh, used to object to too much balance, now it seems to me that they are so heavily opinion. I wonder if that's uh, forced by the digital competition for eyes and readers or what your, what your sense of that change is.
1: Well, I, I guess I would challenge the premise of that. I don't believe that that's the case. Um, certainly journalistic styles change over time um and i think we're living in an era where there's been so much uh misrepresentation of the facts that many news organizations feel an absolute obligation to be very direct uh and even forceful in in making clear what's true and what's not true and using language that um in the past we probably would have avoided like saying lies that something is a lie um but unfortunately these days there are people who are just flat out lying and um and so you know readers may interpret that as as bias. Me- readers may interpret that as opinion uh but um i don't see it that way um and and so i i just don't accept the the premise that um that these are stories that that are stories that are on the front page would nec- would it pre- in a previous era have been on the opinion page? I don't I don't see that at all. In fact, if you go back to the time of Watergate. You know, the Washington Post was heavily criticized. It was accused of bias against the Nixon administration. It was accused of being a partisan, uh, a partisan media enterprise, and uh, it was viewed as the uh, as the opposition. And that's what we hear today. It's the same thing that we're hearing today, or we heard certainly during the Trump administration. And um, there's it's remarkably what we heard during the Trump administration was remarkably equivalent to what. Uh, the Washington Post heard during, uh, during the Watergate era.
0: I'm glad you talked about the Trump administration, and thank you for your call, Bert, because you served as the Post's executive, uh, executive editor for the second half of President Obama's presidency, and for Donald Trump's presidency, Trump regularly disparaged the Post, calling it fake news and an enemy of the people. How did the Trump presidency impact the Post's work and affect the way we think about journalism?
1: Well, I think that, uh, you know, we came under a, a, a degree of attack that we had not really faced before. Um, There's an assumption that somehow we had a cozy relationship with the Obama administration. We at The Post did not. Uh, for years, we asked for an interview with, with Obama and were denied, and the, the administration gave interviews to outlets that were perceived to be friendly uh, to that administration. And I think that's because the Obama administration knew that if we had an interview with the president, we would ask tough questions as we always do um, and um, but you know we've seen attacks from we saw attacks from the Trump administration that we had not seen before a real effort to essentially demolish the the, the mainstream press in this country, uh, an effort to um, to have the public perceive us as the enemies as as garbage, as scum, to use the language that he used as, um, the opposition party, as traitors. Uh, those are all words that the, that, uh, Donald Trump used to characterize the press. So we were not, uh, accustomed to that, of course, and I'm not sure that we were entirely prepared for it, although we experienced some of it during his campaign for the presidency. So, um, I think it just reinforced in us the idea that we we just need to keep doing our job uh, without regard to the pressure that we're under, without regard to the attacks, uh, and that we needed to uh, that that we needed to hold the government to account. Uh, we needed to find out uh, who was responsible for the policies, who was going to be affected by those policies, um, uh, that. Um, you know, if norms, uh, the norms of a democracy uh, were being violated and if the laws were being violated, that we needed to make that clear. Um, and um, I'm not sure that it changed us in any in, in any fundamental way, but it did reinforce in us uh, the need to stick to our mission, to understand why we have a free press in this country. And the reason that we have a free press in this country, um, and it was really defined by James Madison, who was the principal author of the First Amendment, and the idea was to to hold government to account. Uh, that's why we have a free press in this country. And that's what we needed to do. Uh, and it was clear during the Trump administration, and it's clear today during the Biden administration, that uh, we have that as our mission and we will stick to that mission regardless of the pressure that we we experience. The debate
0: over journalistic objectivity has come to the forefront during the Trump presidency and after the George Floyd protests this summer, journalists, including former Washington Post reporter Wesley Lowry, have charged that what passes for objectivity is often subjective decision making by white reporters and editors. You have defended journalistic objectivity. How do you define it?
1: Well, I define objectivity the way that it was defined when the idea was first uh, developed 100 years ago by Walter Libman, who was a famed, famous American journalist, one of the most influential of all time. And uh, his view was that we, we recognize that each, each individual has preconceptions, has their own life experiences, and that they, come into, they may come into a story uh, influenced by their own, their own life experiences, their own preconceptions. And that it's really important that we try as hard as possible to set those aside, to approach stories with an open mind to do our research as thoroughly as possible, as rigorously as possible, as scientifically as possible, uh, and uh, and then find out what's really going on, find out what the facts are. And then when we've done all that, when we're confident that we've done our work appropriately, thoroughly, rigorously, that we then tell the public what we've actually learned, what we've discovered, and tell it to them in a direct, unflinching way. Um, there is a, the, unfortunately these days people are, are interpreting objectivity meaning balance that it's everything's 50-50 uh that it is um that it's equivalent to something that's called both sidesism um it's not that it's not neutrality it's not both sidesism it's not balance it's not any of that it is recognizing that we as individuals every one of us comes to um comes to a story uh with preconceptions um and, and life experiences, and that we need to sort of recognize what they are and, um, and try to be as open-minded as possible and do our research in as rigorous a way as, as we possibly can. What, therefore, is the argument for having a diverse newsroom
0: where people of color, LGBTQ people, and women bring their humanity into the newsroom? What would be the purpose of diversity if not to affect
1: coverage? well that is the, that is the purpose. The purpose is to is to bring different experiences, as I said, you know each of us uh, comes to um, to a story with our different experiences and so it 's important that we be that we not only have one experience in a newsroom that we not only have people who who um, you know, who have grown up a certain way, that we have people who come from all de- all corners of the United States, who have all different life experiences, who are who are diverse, and can then share those those perspectives with other people so that it actually opens our eyes and, and our ears to uh to what we what we might not otherwise see, to stories okay. that we might not recognize, so that we do pursue those stories. Because if we only had, let's say, a newsroom that was white and male, uh we wouldn't see the stories that we ought to be pursuing. And it's important that we have people in our newsroom, that we have a very diverse newsroom, so that, um, that we compensate for the deficiencies in our own, in our own experience. That's why. That's, that's critical, absolutely critical for our, our coverage.
0: Here's Troy in Baltimore. Troy, you're on the air. Go ahead, please.
2: Hi. Uh, my question is, Do you think that um, the newspaper is a dying um, entity as um, digital media is around, that the newspaper will actually be phased out eventually?
1: Well, I do think the physical newspaper is probably going to disappear at some point. I mean, there might be some remnants of it. There will be magazines of some sort. There might be, I don't know, a weekend edition of the paper. But the reality is that we live in a digital era. Most people are getting their information uh, on digital devices. Uh, most of those devices are mobile devices, a, a, a phone. Um, and they're getting it through social media as well. And so that's just the way that we're living. Um, that's the way people live their lives. The idea that uh, you know the primary source of information would be a physical paper delivered to your home at 6 o'clock in the morning or earlier, um, is just, um, that's a thing of the past. Um, and it's unsustainable and, um, it's not the way people live their lives. It's very costly for us to, to produce and, uh, it, it represents the past. It does not represent the future.
0: Thank you for your call. We can't talk about investigative journalism without talking about Spotlight, the 2015 movie that follows the Boston Globe's spotlight investigative team as it reports on a child sex abuse scandal and cover-up in the Boston Archdiocese. The story unfolded, of course, when you were the executive editor of the Boston Globe. Lee Schreiber plays you in the movie. Let's take a listen to part of Schreiber's speech at the end of the film when he's addressing the spotlight team. I can't speak to what happened before I arrived, but
2: uh, all of you have done some very good reporting here. Reporting that I believe is going to have an immediate and considerable impact on our
1: readers. For me, this kind of story is why we do this.
0: That was Lee Schreiber as Marty Baron in the film Spotlight. What did you think of his performance and what was was it like seeing this story on screen?
1: Uh, well, I think he did a fabulous job. I think uh, that whole movie captured uh, what we were experiencing at at, uh, at the Boston Globe. Uh, it uh, captured the the general outlines of the investigation that we that we pursued. Uh, for me, it was. Um, uh, I mean, I never expected to see myself in a movie. Uh, it's I didn't never expect this movie ever to be made. It didn't seem to have the. The qualities that one sees in movies these days: no action, no action uh, scenes, uh, no romance, uh, no superheroes, uh, no special effects. So, um, uh, but I think it was important that it was made, and I'm glad that it was made. I'm glad it was well received um, because I think that it it showed um, what uh, what investigative journalism is all about, uh, why it's important that we pursue it. It showed how difficult it is to execute properly. Uh, it showed the need to hold uh, powerful institutions and powerful people uh, to account. It showed the need to listen to people who don't have power because they have powerful things to say. Um, and um, and I think all of that was... Uh, and I think it had a profound impact on how institutions deal with uh, allegations of sexual abuse. Um, so other institutions have now learned from... Um, from our investigation of the Catholic Church, and um, they don't want to be the next Catholic Church that's discovered to have uh, covered up uh, abuse over decades.
0: Here's Catherine in Arlington, Virginia. Catherine, you're on the air. Go ahead, please.
2: Oh, hi. Hello?
0: Yes, Hello? Catherine. you're hi. on the air.
2: Okay, okay. Um, I've never called before, 22-year uh, listener. Thank you. I wanted to say I grew up in Pennsylvania in a small town, and the newspaper was so essential to me, being able to read stuff that my mother, you know, wouldn't want me to read necessarily. Hello.
1: Yes, we're still hearing you. Okay,
2: it. and I'm sorry. And um, I wanted to say how important. I worked in a taxi company here for like twelve years. And we used to get the Express every morning. I would bring it in. We don't have a in. great
0: deal of time, Catherine, but I think what you want to say is that the physical newspaper is important yes, to you and it should newspaper. not go
1: away. How would you respond yes. in 30 seconds, Marty Baron? Uh, well, you know, look, I, I mourned. I've mourned what's happened to the physical newspaper, but um, I also realized that uh, people can get their information in other ways. Uh, most people have a computer of some sort, uh, they have a phone, which is a powerful computer in uh, of, uh, in and of itself, uh, and people can get information uh, from those devices as well it 's the same information uh, yep. what 's really important mm-hmm. is that we have strong news organizations that they cover their communities throughout the country uh, cover everyone in those communities um, and what 's not so important sure. is whether it comes on a piece of paper or That's whether it 's delivered on a on a, on a device. First, if we're out of time, Marty Barron
0: is the executive editor of The Post retiring at the end of this month. Thank you so much for joining us and good luck to you in your
1: retirement. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks for your interest.
0: Our conversation with Washington Post executive editor Marty Barron was produced by Sidney Grant, and our segment about efforts to restore local control over police to the city of Baltimore was produced by Richard Cunningham. Coming up tomorrow, the coronavirus caused a health care crisis of almost unimaginable proportions, but the pandemic threatens our health in other ways, as many people put off medical treatment for everything from broken bones to cancer. We discuss the causes and consequences of delaying care. That all starts tomorrow at noon. Until then, thank you for listening and stay safe. I'm Kojo Nan.
1: for listening to The Kojo Nnamdi Show, and if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the Donate button, and thanks.